Good morning, everybody. Good morning to our visitors that are with us. Uh, familiar faces, but it's been a little while, and uh, that's one of the things about the last couple of years is the folks that we are used to seeing come and visit and, and join us haven't been able to, and so we're really glad to see to see you guys here with us. And everybody, good crowd today, and um, always nice to fellowship together, to sing with one another, and to, to just share in this time. It's a highlight for me. We are looking at Jesus stories. We're examining how to read these stories with a fresh set of eyes. Knowing how these accounts end, we know these stories generally, we have some experience with them, and I've encouraged you to try and immerse yourself into the story, to put yourself in that time and in that place and experience it and hear it in, for the first time, kind of in, in, a, in a fresh way, so that we see some of the messages that we sometimes lose. We talked about that a little bit last week with Lazarus and how we see the interaction with his family and with Jesus and with his traveling and his timing. And this week we're going to look at another story, this one from the Gospel of Luke in, uh, in chapter 7. And these stories help us to understand who Jesus was in the life that he lived on this earth. We know Jesus. Uh, we know the impression we have of him, and we understand him in a particular way. But I fear that sometimes we read the Gospels and we don't come away with a really good understanding of who Jesus was. And so hopefully we can look at these a little differently and maybe understand him a little differently and make him someone who is more real to us and see what was at the heart of his ministry. So in Luke chapter 7... There's, there's a, uh, a really interesting uh, social event that occurs. We begin in verse 36 of chapter 7. It says, now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. Um, now, let's start right here with the Pharisees, okay? First of all, uh, I, I cannot imagine being invited to a party by a Pharisee. Uh, and I can't imagine what a Pharisee party would be like, but I... Ain't no party like a Pharisee party, apparently. And Jesus said, okay, and goes to this man's house to dine. Now, when I was growing up, uh, what do you mean when? As I'm growing up, I hear, uh, we kind of hear the, the Pharisees referred to kind of like the bad guys of the Gospels. Uh, and, and, and we tend to do that with any story. We have good guys and bad guys, protagonists, antagonists. And so the Pharisees kind of become the bad guys. We, as, as Christians, and particularly in our, in our faith tradition and our movement, we would be very similar to the Pharisees. We would be right there with them. And I'm not using that as a pejorative. They were a back-to-the-Bible movement. They were a sect of Judaism and really more of a political party than anything else. But their persuasion was, we need to get back to God's law, and we need to follow it, and we need to pursue it. And if we get it right then we get into heaven. If we can get these things right and teach them and, and follow them, we can figure this out. They were very much a back-to-the-Bible sort of people. We would have probably been cheering them on, and that's okay. We need to stop looking at them like the bad guys. I think that we need to look at them almost as we would look at ourselves in these stories. 
because it does help us to see a fresh perspective. We know that they led the, the, the push to get rid of Jesus, to put him to death. We understand they were misguided and mistaken, but they sincerely believed that they were pleasing God with their faithful adherence to the old law and with their, their teaching and enforcing of the old law. So right away, we need to kind of back off of the Pharisees a little bit so that we can see the picture more clearly. Here is a respected member of the community, a respected member of their faith and their religion, inviting Jesus to dine with him. He's going to have a dinner party. Now, meals with people were very, very important. They still are in Semitic cultures and Middle Eastern cultures. When you eat with someone, when you sit at a table with someone, you are obligating yourselves to one another. You are welcoming and accepting one another. And you, you join with one another. A meal time and the sharing of a meal is a sacred moment and occurrence. It's what makes our coming to the table together so important. If, if, if we understand what the importance of Jesus and his disciples sharing that meal together was, we better understand our own joining each other at the table. But here they're going to have a meal. They're going to dine together. Uh, so this Pharisee invites him over. Jesus accepts, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Um, they, their way of dining was very different than ours, um, though there are many cultures that still exist in this world that dine similarly. Uh, the Romans believed that uh, sitting up while eating was not good for digestion. And so they, their, their culture was that they laid at the table and they reclined, maybe propped up on an elbow, but, and it wasn't feet to head. That would have been kind of gross. They kind of leaned away from, you know, put their feet away from the table, but they reclined around the table and ate with their hands generally. That would have been the, the typical fashion of eating. So they're reclined at the table. Now, when we get to verse 37, that's where the action starts. So let's talk about what was going on in the world during this time. They had a welfare system, the Jews did, a social safety net that if we were to follow their pattern would be the most efficient and successful welfare system that's ever been created. It would put what we do in our country to shame. They had built into their law and into their practice thoughtfulness for the poor and for those who, who were uh, in poverty, underprivileged, or in otherwise precarious circumstances. For instance, when they harvested their fields, they did not harvest the entire field. They harvested the middle of the field, and they left the corners unharvested. They left the wheat. They left uh, whatever they were growing there for those who were less fortunate and those who were in need to come along and take what they needed. Whenever they would dine together, as they're about to here, and by the way, uh, there was no indoor dining. Okay, Kitchens were not inside. They weren't attached to a home. They were outside, and they were separate because if something catches on fire, you don't want to lose your house. Uh, we did that even in this country for a long, long time. So they're outside. When you're having a party, everybody in town knows about it. Everybody's aware that you're getting together. And so the poor, the destitute, the indigent, would gather at the home where the feast or where the meal was being prepared, and they would wait outside, outside the walls, on the perimeter, until the guests were finished dining. 
when the guests were finished dining, there's leftovers. And then the poor got to come and eat the leftovers. That was their welfare system. That was how they cared for those who were less fortunate. It was part of their law, part of their tradition. And so you have this arrangement. That's why this woman that we're about to meet was there, because that's where the poor were. They were waiting outside the walls on the perimeter for their turn to eat. But she didn't wait her turn. There was a woman in the city who was a sinner, verse 37. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Um, they were still eating. They were still dining. For someone of this class of people to enter into the dining area, my watch thinks I'm talking to her, to enter into the dining area at that time would have been incredibly scandalous. Incredibly scandalous. That's breaking protocol. That is breaking the protocol of the dining, of the meal. She's not allowed to come out from the wall yet. By the way, the parable of the where, where, where Jesus talks about the, the, the first shall be last, the last shall be first, the person that comes and sits at the head of the table immediately, and the one who waits and is given, he's talking about the people waiting on the wall and those who are at the table. Okay, That sheds a little more light on that story and on that message. But this woman breaks from protocol. She leaves where the poor people are and goes straight to the table. But she's not there to get leftovers and she's not there to get food. She's there to do something for Jesus. Now when we read this, that's a very strange interaction that's happening. Why would this woman come up, cry on his feet, wipe his tears, or wipe her tears on his feet, kiss his feet? She has this perfume. Okay, so let's be blunt about this. Um, it says she was a sinner. While, you know, the story about the woman caught in adultery, we don't really know a lot about her. We know she was caught in the act of adultery. We don't know who else was involved. We don't know whether it was just a one-time thing or whether that was her job. We don't know that. With this woman, we have a little bit more evidence. This woman is a prostitute. The, the possession of this perfume makes it very likely because perfume was a tool of the trade. It was used in that profession. That she very likely, that was her life. Her life was being bought and sold and used to survive. It was a part of that world. It still is a part of the world in many places where those who have no one to care for them resort to these kinds of professions. So now consider the fact that Jesus is at the table with the religious elite a poor prostitute comes from the side of, from the, from the wall, from the edge, the perimeter, to the table, breaking protocol, and begins to do something that we see as very strange, but in their culture is a very clear sign of something. In scripture and in Jewish text, the feet are a major uh, clue of something sexual, generally. When uh, you see Ruth and Boaz, Ruth uncovers Boaz's feet. 
and then they decide they're married because they didn't do the whole marriage certificate and ceremony thing. When you were married, you were married. But she uncovers the feet. That's a signal in the text that there's something happening with them. Now, there's nothing sexual going on here with Jesus and this woman, okay? But the feet were a really intimate part of the body in their culture. The fact that she is kissing his feet, wiping his feet, crying on them, would have been a very startling and scandalous sight. A woman of the evening touching the Messiah's feet. That would have been headlines. That would have been atomic bomb headlines if that happened today. So here's a scandalous thing happening, and then and the people are seeing it. The Pharisee, verse 38, who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Now, he's thinking this to himself. He's thinking to himself, if he is a prophet, he would know what's going on. He would be aware. Why would he be aware? Because if he's a prophet, if he's a servant of God, a messenger of God in some way, he would also understand that to be touched by someone like this would make him unclean. And he would have been very aware to stay away from that which would make him unclean. The story of the Good Samaritan, when the people who were supposed to be stopping to help, like the, like the priest and the rabbi, and they crossed to the other side because they cared more about staying ceremonially clean than to touch someone who was half dead in a ditch. That's why they cross over. Because the ceremonial cleanliness, had the, the keeping of the letter of the law had begun to outweigh the duty they had to one another. That's something that Jesus taught about a lot. And as we spoke of last time, when Jesus faces the conundrum of the law, in every case, love trumps law. Love trumps law in the ministry of Christ. And so the Pharisee is wondering this to himself, it says. So he's thinking this. And then Jesus answered him. Now, that would have been startling, I think, wouldn't it? You're thinking something, and then Jesus answers it out loud, what you were thinking. But he does. He says, Simon, apparently the name of the Pharisee, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. Verse 41, a money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? This kind of questioning, asking questions and developing conversation was very much a Greek way of reasoning, a Greek form of rhetoric. It descends uh, you know, all the way through the ages as a part of the, the development of that culture and the growth of that culture. We, it left its impression on this part of the world really strongly. And Jesus, in keeping with that culture, poses questions and gets answers, and poses follow-up questions, and then reveals purpose. Verse 43, Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more, right? And that makes sense. The one who received the greater gift, the relief of a larger debt, would certainly have a greater love. 
And he said to him, you have judged correctly. You're right. Verse 44, turning toward the woman. Now watch this. Now, folks, if you can't find a little bit of humor in Scripture, you're reading it wrong, okay? If you can't see that this is, this would have been bizarre to be witnessing. He said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, why is that a strange question? And why does it, is it kind of a funny question? Because that's all anybody was noticing. They were all watching the woman. And he asks this almost rhetorical question. Do you see this woman down here? Yeah, they've all been staring at it for quite a while. Because it's a prostitute touching your feet at dinner. There is nothing about it that comports with our tradition and our rules. And there is nothing about it that makes anybody comfortable and it cannot be ignored. But Jesus very casually and almost humorously to me says, do you happen to notice what's going on down here? Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. Now, by the way, if that sounds odd, uh, it was not uncommon. It would have been very common when, we, when people greeted one another, including men and same-sex people, to greet one another with a kiss. Very common in a lot of parts of the world. Very uncommon to us because Americans, we don't... We've been social distancing since before it was cool, okay, in our country. Other societies are much more intimate and much more close. And, uh, and so he, he points this out. You didn't give me water for my feet. She came and cleaned my feet. You didn't kiss me. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. That's interesting, by the way. Um, that was a part of common practice, a part of you know, their personal care and hygiene, and also uh, a, a method in that part of the world. You're in the sun a lot. You're outdoors. You're walking. Would have been how people protected their head um, if they happen to be bald, to put oil on their head, um, to protect it from the sun. I've never wondered if Jesus was bald, but it's very possible. We don't know. Anyway, interesting thought. Uh, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, what he's saying is, the people, similar to when he says it's not, the, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick, she has a long way to go. She's got a lot of sin in her life. She has suffered greatly, and she is showing love in response to forgiveness at a level that's proportionate to what she's been forgiven of, and you haven't shown me as much love because you haven't got as far to go. Because you know the Lord. You know God. And you may be off base in some of your practice, but that's why she's doing what she's doing. Because she recognizes the difference that Jesus makes in her life. This is a hard concept for those of us that have grown up in church and that are comfortable in a church environment. I actually had a conversation with my dad about this yesterday. Um, He's working with a, a Bible class at their church, and they're doing a panel discussion about parenting and raising children through the transition to adulthood. Uh, he's done that twice now, and he's got one more to go, uh, transitioning to adulthood. 
and he was asking what that experience was like for me. And we talked about it for a while. One thing that I kind of thought of was I was never outside of that church bubble growing up. I was at church. I was in private Christian school. I went across the street to another private Christian university. I was right there in the midst of it. I lived in the buckle of the Bible belt. And that was good for me, but it also was a challenge for me. I never felt lost, even when I, got, when I made the decision to get baptized. And I think I made that for the right reasons, to accept Christ, to become a Christian. I think I did that for the right reasons. But I never had that moment where I thought, oh, no, my soul is in danger of hell. I need to do something about it. I just recognized that this is what I now, I, I, I believe, and I'm going to do it. I've known people who have not grown up in church, who have not grown up in Christian homes, who later in life become convicted that their soul is in danger of hell and accept Jesus Christ, and they are very different in their attitude toward evangelism than I have been in my life. There is a sense of urgency with those who have felt lost. There is a sense of gratitude for those who have felt lost, that I have to struggle to find in myself. And I'm grateful for those people because they remind me. Jesus is pointing out that this woman's attitude is very different because she realizes where she stands and she realizes how far she has to go. Now, Jesus announces that her sins are forgiven. She, he is giving her something that as far as we can tell in the text, she has not asked for. Because then in verse 48, he says to her, your sins have been forgiven. I don't see where she asked for that. I don't see where she asked to be forgiven. He just did it. He did the same thing with the woman caught in adultery when we read that story. He's, he does it different. He says it differently. He says, well, then neither do I accuse you. This forgiveness is given almost without asking. And it's lacking something very important. If you read on in verse 49, those who were reclining at the table began to say to themselves, who is this man who, is, who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. There's something missing here because he tells her to go in peace. He does not say leave your life of sin. Do you notice that? He doesn't say stop doing what you're doing. He forgives her, offers no prerequisite, doesn't even wait on her to ask, just does it, and then tells her to go in peace. Now, we only have the text to go by, but there's no evidence here that he demanded that she change how she was living. And what are we to make of that? Well, given the circumstances, I think there's some things we need to consider. The profession that she was in was very different then and in that place and time than what we think of it today. Though there are some similarities. She was involved in a certain industry because she had to be. She may have been forced into it by someone. She may have been owned. She may have been forced to sell herself and to engage in that and had no way out. 
That's one possibility. She could also be without a husband or without someone to care for her and have to support herself. And that was one of the options. That's why there's so much shame associated with divorce uh, and, and having no children and being widowed and that sort of thing in, in Scripture. That's why those people live in such precarious circumstances. She could have had children. She could have had babies at home. She could have had children that needed food and clothing, that were crying. And Jesus knew that. And Jesus does not demand of her because his demands do not drown out the crying of children. He hears them. Jesus knew her circumstances and he dealt with her accordingly. And we know the law. And we know God's will. And yes, we're not in those circumstances. And we understand that experiencing the love of Jesus Christ and putting our faith in him and making the choice to accept a life walking his path according to his will, looks different than the world around us. And we understand that that demands change of us sometimes. We understand that that should transform our heart and our life. Rightly so. But knowing that and understanding that does not give us the right to ignore the circumstances and experiences of others. Jesus didn't, and neither should we. We encourage and we teach, and we love, and we walk with people, and we try to understand them, and we try to show the love of Christ. And this Jesus story, when we live it and experience it and understand the context of it, is challenging and eye-opening. Jesus does tell us to go into all the world and to share the gospel, and to make disciples, and to teach them all that he's commanded. That is true. But even when people fall short of those things, we accept them, and we love them, and we walk with them. Because we all have different walks, and we all have different experiences, and we all have different circumstances. To love the way Jesus loved is hard, because we like to draw lines, and we like to have boundaries, and we like to know the rules. And we like to think that if you, if you have your sins forgiven, then you go and sin no more. And sometimes that's true, and sometimes that's not possible for some people. And Jesus says, love them anyway. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Jesus says, love one another, love others, over and over and over. And frankly, some of you make it harder than it has to be. But that's what we are commanded to do. Because some days I make it hard. We all do. Love trumps law. We love without expectation. We love as Jesus loved. Knowing that everybody's journey represents a long chasm between where their heart is and where Jesus is calling them to. And the longer that chasm, the longer that journey, 
The more love we have in our hearts, the more we understand and accept, and the more joy we feel when Jesus bridges that gap. This Jesus story reminds me that my story is not everyone's story. And their story is not my story. And while we all have an individual journey, we are on a collective path. And to help one another through that, we have to be willing to look at the world through their eyes. In a very different time, in a very different place, granted. But Jesus forgives without precondition. He offers grace where there is condemnation. He offers love where there is marginalization. He reached to the people who were unreachable. He touched the people that were untouchable. He loved those who were unlovable. We should be able to do that to ourselves and to others because Jesus was willing. This morning, if you need prayer or encouragement or someone to walk that journey with you, I hope you'll let us know that. We'd love to walk it with you and pray together and live together a life of love, a life of joy, walking closer to our Savior. Let us know if you need that as Jonathan leads us in a song.